Some of you may remember that when I had the opportunity to preach on Genesis uh, 35 and 36, I introduced the sermon by talking about my favorite fiction book. My favorite fiction book is uh, Speaker for the Dead by Orson Scott Card. It's the sequel to Ender's Game, a much more famous book, but it's actually the book that Card wanted to write whenever he started writing Ender's Game. He, he wrote a prologue for Speaker for the Dead and it just got too long. It kept getting you know, 70, 80 pages and he said, you know what, I just need to write another book. And so he wrote Ender's Game. Now, Speaker for the Dead is a little bit more of an adult book, whereas Ender's Game is, is for younger audiences. Uh, but it's a sci-fi book that takes place in our universe very far in the future. And because of some of the events that happen in Ender's Game, there has arisen an order of people called Speakers for the Dead. And a Speaker for the Dead is something of a secular priest. Uh, they normally perform funerals for anyone who calls for one, and their task is simple. They retell the story of the person's life, warts and all. They don't exclude anything when they retell the, the, the story of the person's life. And there's an underlying belief there that to cover over the sins of the deceased does not honor them. And it definitely doesn't honor the people that they sinned against who might attend their funerals. Today, as we draw to a close in Genesis, we will see Jacob on his deathbed. However, Jacob's story has already been told. So rather, he takes this time to speak blessings, curses, and prophecies over his sons. He takes time to speak their deaths, as it were. So we're going to look at Jacob's last words in Genesis today. If you'll turn with me to Genesis 49, we can dive in. We'll start by just reading the first two verses of the chapter, which will set up the larger story. And then we'll move on from there. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob, listen to Israel, your father. Now you'll notice by the formatting of the rest of the chapter, or the vast majority of the chapter in your Bibles, that Genesis 49 is mostly a poem. It's a very large poem. Uh, it's the largest poem in Genesis. And about half of it uh, is given to Jacob's blessings over Judah and Joseph. So you might, no one has to wonder who his favorite sons are. Uh, <laughs> 10 of the 25 verses. So we're actually going to look at those two blessings last. We're going to look at the blessings out of order of how Jacob presents them. Jacob presents them in the order of the birth of his sons, uh, more or less. And we're going to look at them out of order, uh, in the order of their length instead. So several of the blessings are only two to three lines long, and we'll look at them first. And then we'll move to those that have four to ten lines. And then lastly, we'll, we'll look at Judah and Joseph's. Also, at some point when I was working on this sermon, I had the thought that um, there should be a BuzzFeed, BuzzFeed quiz to tell you which son of Israel you are. Um, are you more of an Issachar or a Dan? Uh, probably be about as insightful as your, as your zodiac sign. So that being said, uh, we also need to keep in mind the way the prophecy, that prophecy works in uh, the Old Testament as, uh, as we read these texts. Um, there's a common metaphor that will help us to understand how Jacob is speaking here. Prophecy in the Bible is is very much like a mountain range. Whenever you see it from a distance, all the peaks look like they're a part of the same ridge. But if you get close to one of them, if you stand on one of the mountains, you realize, wow, these mountains are really, really far apart. In the same way, prophecy can have multiple fulfillments that are very distinct from one another, but they look the same whenever you're looking at them from, from a distance, from the prophecy itself. 
So Jacob will say things about his sons that will sound like he's addressing them directly, but will then come to fruition in their descendants or in their tribes rather than the son themselves. We'll see these, this all over the place, and it's an appropriate interpretation technique to examine each of these blessings, curses, and prophecies in light of both the individual child that Jacob is speaking to and, and their descendants. So we'll begin with the three shortest blessings for Gad, Asher, and Naphtali. These are verses 19 through 21. Verses 19 through 21. So let's go ahead and read them. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Now, I won't have much to say about these three blessings, but in all fairness, neither did Jacob, and they were his children. So, which one of us is really in the wrong here? Um, Hebrew poetry is one of the most difficult things to translate faithfully into English. Poetry generally is very difficult to translate into other languages because it can carry so much imagery, symbolism, and meaning just in the way that it uses its words. And it is difficult and ultimately impossible for us to capture every single nuance uh, while still having some sort of contained uh, translation. But we can get the idea, we can get the gist. We have different words with different connotations, but we can get the truth of the statements. But if you have aspirations to study the original languages, I'd actually encourage you to look at poetry in the Bible and study that deeply. Uh, we covered poetry and wisdom literature in my Hebrew class this semester, and it was by far the best part of, of learning Hebrew. So there are little nuggets and insights that are difficult to bring over into English. An example would be in Genesis 1-2, when the earth is described as, as formless and void, the words there rhyme. It's tohu vavohu. It is wild and waste. And here in Genesis 49, we see something similar in these three blessings. In fact, most of Jacob's blessings to his sons rely on wordplay for their names. So Gad's name sounds very similar to the word for raid. And Gad's, Gad's blessing is raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. And Gad's blessing in Hebrew just sounds like his name repeated a bunch of times, basically. You hear all the different words that have the, the G and then a vowel and then D in them. And the poetry here is crafted this way on purpose. The good news about this is that you'll see these sort of, uh, these sort of nuggets rarely if you have a serious uh, bearing on the meeting, or these, these nuggets will rarely have a bearing on the meeting. You'll get 95% of the idea from an English translation most of the time, but there is something of the beauty of poetry missing from it in English. So, Again, if you have the time or aspiration, as I know a few of you do, it's worth learning the languages for this sort of thing. These three blessings or prophecies all say something about their subjects. Gad shall be attacked, but he shall respond in kind. Asher will have luxuries, Naphtali will be fruitful. These prophecies bear out in Joshua when these tribes are given their land allotments. Gad is one of the few tribes that has allotted his land east of the Jordan subject to the peoples of the Arabian Peninsula invading. Naphtali and, and Asher uh, will be next door neighbors and their land will stretch north to Phoenicia. And they'll have fruitful and luxurious land, both because of their soil and because of their nearness to other nations to trade with. Let's go ahead and look at the next tier of blessings. Benjamin, 
Zebulun, Issachar, and Dan. And we'll start by looking at Benjamin's, and then we'll look at the others. So verse 27, Benjamin. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey, and at the evening dividing the spoil. This blessing is strange for a few reasons. Firstly, it is not readily apparent whether Jacob perceives this as being a good thing or a bad thing. A ravenous wolf is a dangerous animal, surely, but not necessarily positive or negative. We don't know what prompted Jacob to say this to his son, so we have a little bit of an undetermined meaning here. What is clear is that Jacob expects Benjamin and his followers to be powerful warriors, to be mighty defenders of the people of Israel. And this prophecy comes to bear in the person of Ehud in the book of Judges. Ehud is a Benjamite warrior who is a judge in Judges 3, who lives in Israel while it's being oppressed by the Moabite king, Eglon. And Ehud maneuvers his way into Eglon's throne room and assassinates him. Certainly devouring the prey and delivering Israel from its oppression. However, the Benjamites will also go on to be vicious at the end of Judges and bring about civil war in Israel. So it is sort of a mixed bag. What's interesting about this blessing to me is that for most of the Genesis narrative, Benjamin has been a favorite son of Jacob. And all he has to say about him here is a few short lines about how he'll be like a ravenous wolf. Perhaps this is revealing of the emphasis that Jacob wants to place on Judah and on Joseph. Judah is not historically one of Jacob's favorite sons, but he is recognized by Jacob as the natural born leader of his brothers and a self-sacrificial man. Either way, it is clear that while Jacob may love Benjamin more, he doesn't necessarily have expectation for him the way that he does for Judah and for Joseph. Let's go ahead and read verses 13 through 18. The blessings of Zebulun, Issachar, and Dan. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey, crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good, and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear, and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backwards. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Zebulun's blessing is an interesting one as it shows that scripture, especially prophetic scripture, may not always be amenable to the strictest literal interpretation possible. It's said that Zebulun will dwell at the shore of the sea and that he will be a haven for ships. But Zebulun's land allotment in Joshua does not actually extend to the sea. It's smack dab in between Naphtali and Asher's. However, Zebulun's land is a hub for international trade between Israel and Phoenicia. And that's where the line about being a border to Sidon comes from. Sidon is part of Phoenicia. So it is likely that Zebulun had some amount of sea control, even without a port, just because of its tradeability. Issachar's blessing is an unfortunate one. It doesn't seem as though he had taken any particular action to bring this fate upon himself, but it looks like his people will be forced into servanthood and slavery. The image of a strong donkey is one of noble discipline and hard work, but it is also one of a beast of burden. Donkeys were 
work animals who plowed not for their own benefit, but for the benefit of others. Issachar and his descendants, it seems, will suffer the same fate. And lastly for this section is Dan. Dan is another of the blessings whose name is very clearly used as wordplay in his prophecy. Dan's name sounds like the word to judge. Perhaps the coolest fulfillment of this prophecy is that there is a very famous judge that comes from the line of Dan, Samson. Samson, the judge who deceived, outwitted, and slayed thousands of Philistine warriors. Certainly Samson was not a good man, but he was a man used by God for his particular point in time. Some medieval Jewish scholars believed that the serpent portion here in verse 17 of Dan's blessing is actually foretelling of Samson's slippery behavior. He was aggressive and cunning against the Philistines, even if he was foolish about the women he spent time with and what he told them. Now your English translations of Dan's blessing likely include verse 18, but verse 18 sticks out like a sore thumb in the midst of these blessings and prophecies though. It doesn't seem to fit nicely into Dan's blessing, but it does fit nicely into the overarching theme of this passage. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Jacob is blessing and foretelling the future of his sons, but he knows that the only way they're going to survive or be delivered is by the salvation of the Lord. There is no other avenue by which his descendants will flourish. There is no other avenue by which the people of God will flourish. It is the providence of the Lord, the salvation of the Lord that he waits on. We'll see this theme come out a lot more in Joseph's blessing, but especially in Judah's blessing. For now though, We'll go ahead and touch on Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, and then we'll get to the, to the main event of Judah and Joseph. Verses three through seven. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel, O my glory. Be not joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Reuben, Simeon, and Levi are the only brothers to receive very explicit curses from their father for their actions. Some of the other prophecies have been ambiguous as to the positive or negative of them, Benjamin and Issachar's. But here Jacob clearly curses these three brothers and roots their curses in mistakes that, and sins that they have committed. Reuben, Simeon, and Levi are Jacob's first three children, all born to his wife Leah. So if anyone should have a place of prominence in Jacob's family, it should be these three. They were his firstborn children, born to his first wife. So why are they the ones to receive the curses? Well, we talked about it when they came up, but that was a few months ago. So we'll start with Reuben. 
Back in chapter 35, Reuben committed a disturbing act of betrayal against his father. Genesis 35:22 says, While Israel lived in that, in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Israel heard of it. Reuben went and slept with his father's concubine, the mother of his brothers Dan and Naphtali. This doesn't appear to be simply an act of lust, but in actuality, it was a power grab. It was likely an act to, to shame and usurp his father's power and his family. And in Genesis 35, Jacob doesn't curse or cast out Reuben for his sin. He merely hears about it. The slowness of Jacob's response is, is perhaps a condemnation of his behavior, of his passivity. But it was still Reuben's sin that brought condemnation upon his head. You can imagine Reuben's hope or fear as he gathered around his father's bedside, hoping that he would be given a good blessing even in spite of his behavior. And Jacob begins this prophecy of Reuben with these majestic descriptions. It says, my might, first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and power. And just as Reuben gets excited, his hopes are dashed. His father knew of Reuben's sin and curses him for it. You shall not have preeminence. Reuben will not receive the right of the firstborn. No double portion of inheritance, no prominence in the life of the Israelites. This prophecy about Reuben comes true. There are no kings, there are no prophets, and there are no judges that come from Reuben's tribe. His land is apportioned east of the Jordan, subject to attack and scorn by the Arameans, Moabites, and Edomites. Reuben becomes more or less one of the forgotten tribes of Israel. This is another example of the simple truth that no one gets away with anything at all. We can sin and not feel its effects till decades after the fact, but that does not mean we have gotten away with it. Church, I want to exhort you, do not give into the lie that you tell yourself that you can get away with anything, that your pet sin only bothers you. It won't harm anyone else. You can control it. You cannot. Spend some time this week really meditating on the potential consequences of not killing that sin. Spend some time imagining a world where that sin festers and grows as it inevitably, inevitably will in the darkness. What future pain might it cause you if you do not kill your sin today? Much like planting trees, the best time to kill your sin would have been 10 years ago, but the second best time is now. Dwell on what it might cost you. It cost Reuben his legacy and the preeminence of the firstborn and one of the longest continuing people groups in human history. Simeon and Levi get a joint curse because they lost their blessing in an act that they took together. The curse is somewhat painful as well. Jacob in verse six says, let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, do not be joined to their company. It seems as though Jacob wants nothing to do with them, that he wants to break fellowship with his own sons. He curses them for their violence. Back in chapter 34, Simeon and Levi, angered by the mistreatment and assault of their sister Dinah, decided to slaughter the entire city of Shechem. This genocidal rampage angered Jacob because it made their family enemies of the Canaanites. This threatened Jacob's sense of safety as they traveled through Canaan. As a consequence of their sin, Jacob divides and scatters them. 
This comes to bear in their tribe allotments of land. Levi receives no allotment of land. Levi is the tribe of the priesthood. So they're given 48 cities scattered across Israel, just as Jacob has just said that they'll be scattered across Israel. And Simeon gets a small portion of land, but it is entirely surrounded by Judah's land. All the borders are Judah's. Hemden, Judah gives a buffer for Simeon, both so nations won't attack his land and so that Simeon won't aggress the nations around his tribe. Once again, the, the consequences of the sin of these men are withheld for decades before they come to bear in Jacob's deathbed blessings and curses for them. The harshness of Jacob's denouncement of Reuben, Simeon, and Levi is stark. He breaks fellowship with these sons on his deathbed. Can you imagine the last words that your father says to you are words of disappointment and scorn and hate? We do not escape the consequences of our sin. And tragically, our sin will have effects for our descendants. Our children will suffer for our poor decisions for years to come. There's a reason so many behavioral problems are rooted in our relationships with our parents. So brothers and sisters, do not, leave sin, do not let sin have a foothold. It does not only have an effect on you. Your sin's effect will come to bear on your spouse, on your children, and on your brothers and sisters in Christ. Do not let it have a foothold or it will take more. Do not give your sin a cookie or it will want a glass of milk. Too often I've thought, well, I can control this sin or this one isn't a big deal. I'm in charge here. It's like holding the head of a venomous viper and drawing it near to your neck without ever allowing it to strike. What you are doing does not benefit you at all. But it is precisely what the viper wants. If only we could cast it away and flee from it, we might be saved. What exactly are we getting for drawing the viper near? The thrill of an adrenaline rush? Our cost-benefit analysis here is poor. <laughs> As John Owen writes, be killing your sin or it will be killing you. Do it swiftly, do it in community, do it prayerfully, and do it by the power of the spirit and not on your own strength. All right. Finally, we are at the moment you've all been waiting for. Time to talk about the big blessings. Joseph and Judah. We'll start with Joseph. Let's read Genesis 49, verses 22 through 26. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow of, by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the almighty who will bless you, with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents. Up to the bounties of the everlasting hills, may they be on the head of Joseph." and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Jacob begins by remarking on Joseph's fruitfulness. The image he paints here is that of a garden tree that is heavy laden with fruit. So heavy laden that its branches hang over the garden wall that it's planted behind. Its branches swing low, offering fruit freely to any who pass by. 
This image has rung true for Joseph's story thus far. If there's anything we know about Joseph's character, it's that he's successful. He provides much benefit for those around him. Anything he was put in charge of flourished. Joseph was an aptly named person. His name means to add to or to increase. And everything he touches is increased and added to and flourishes. This image is also a reference to his son Ephraim, who Jacob had just blessed as well. Ephraim's name means twice fruitful. Ephraim will take a prominent position in the land of Israel for the first few centuries until the monarchy is established. His position is so prominent, in fact, that he rivals, uh, he rivals Judah for the quote-unquote preeminent line. Jacob continues his blessing by speaking of the opposition that Joseph had faced, the attacks of his brother, the false accusation of Potiphar's wife, being forgotten by the king's men in prison. Yet throughout all that, Joseph remained steadfast. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. Jacob was, Joseph was sustained by God. Joseph rested on God and was sustained by him. And for this, heaps upon heaps upon heaps of blessings were added to him. Joseph's blessing alongside the end of Dan's blessing in verse 18, I will wait on your salvation, O Lord, really distills the whole message of Genesis. The whole message of Genesis is a testament to the character of God. God is sovereign and God is good. God is sovereign and God is good. He has a gracious plan of blessing that he is enacting. And he's going to bring it about despite our circumstances. God has given us and is going to continue to be faithful to give us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This book and its message are for us when we are lost in the darkness, when we are doubtful of God's character. This is the goodness This is the answer he gives to Job when Job questions him. He has revealed his character, the goodness and the power within him. We can trust that he is good and powerful even when we are suffering and even when we do not understand his purposes. We see this truth in Genesis and in every other book of the Bible, but it is perhaps best illustrated in the person and work of Jesus Christ. When we don't understand why God would let us suffer, when we don't understand why God would let evil things happen, we can look to Christ and trust him. Because God did not merely permit evil to happen, he suffered under its fury. God did not and does not abandon us to the darkness, but rather steps into it in order to give us light. We can trust him, even when we don't know what's going on. Like Joseph, we can trust him in the pit of slavery and in the darkness of a jail cell. He is still good and he is still powerful even in those places. And we will see this truth carried forward in Jacob's blessing over Judah. Let's turn now to Judah's blessing. The only one we haven't discussed yet. Judah's blessing in verses 8 through 12. Let's read. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cup, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come. 
and the obedience of the nations shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Sorry, I forgot to mention that I would be reading Judah's in the New International Version translation rather than ESV. But that beside the point. The beginning of Jacob's blessing of Judah sounds like a reappropriation of Joseph's dream about his brothers. Joseph's dream had been fulfilled. His brothers did bow down to him as the viceroy and governor of Egypt. Now the bowing brothers will turn to face Judah. He will be the one who is victorious over his enemies and his brothers will acknowledge his leadership. See, Judah has played the role of leader all throughout his prominence in the narrative concerning Jacob's sons. He had the idea to sell Joseph into slavery and he persuaded his brothers that way. He was the one who persuaded Jacob to allow him to return to Egypt with Benjamin. And he was the one who pleaded with Joseph to free Benjamin once Benjamin had been a prison, imprisoned. And Jacob is now formally recognizing Judah's leadership of the brothers and his blessing. And going forward, it will be the tribe of Judah that leads the way. Now, what makes Judah worthy of this honor? Didn't he in chapter 38 make a complete mess? Didn't he humiliate and embarrass himself? by not caring for a woman that he was responsible for and sleeping with a prostitute? Yes, he did. He is broken and sinful. But the people of God are not those who are good. They're those who repent and believe. Not perfectly, but reliably. They do it again and again. And Judah's repentance was profound. Prior to his encounter with Tamar, he was opportunistic and wicked. But then he lost two sons, abused and mistreated his daughter-in-law, and saw his own wickedness exposed before all. And he responded by repenting, by changing. He said, she is more righteous than I, in chapter 38. This event in his life led him to become the man that stood before Joseph and offered up his own life as a sacrifice. He offered up his own life, accepting the same fate that he cast Joseph into so that his brother Benjamin might go free. For the love of his father, he lays down his life for his brother. Judah is a man of God and a progenitor of Christ, not because he's perfect, not even because he was a good man. It was because he repented and believed. Jacob, in his blessing, then gives Judah three characteristics. Judah and his descendants will be like lions, as they are warriors. Warriors that are lion-like. Steadfast kings. And they will produce abundance for their people. Judah and his descendants will be warriors like a lion, steadfast kings, and produce abundance for their people. Verse 9, Judah is a lion's cub. He, like Benjamin, is compared to a ferocious animal in order to demonstrate his violent power. But while a wolf is certainly vicious, a lion is regal and dominant. Lions are hunters, never the hunted. That is until we invented rifles. But. Verse 10, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. The instruments of scepter and staff belong to the king. The kingship will not pass out of the line of Judah. The leadership will not pass out of the line of Judah. 
until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. Judah's line will be the line of kings and one of those kings will command the obedience of the nations. In verses 11 and 12, reveal a grand abundance under the reign of this king. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colts to the choicest branch. This means that he'll tie up an animal to a vine of grapes because he doesn't mind if the animal eats the grapes. There's so many of them, it's inconsequential. One commentator said that this would be like lighting a cigarette with a dollar bill. It's an act of extreme extravagance. Then he will wash his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Again, there will be such abundance under the reign of this king that wine would flow like water. A grand indication of luxury and abundance. So the descendants of Judah will be lion-like warriors, supreme kings, and they will bring about abundance in their land. And I know that you know where I'm going. But before we get there, we have to talk about David. King David is the first one to fulfill these prophecies. He is certainly a lion-like warrior. Remember the people shouting, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. David was such a violent man that his hands were covered in so much blood that he was unfit to build a temple for God. King David was certainly a lion-like warrior. King David was a supreme king, unifying Israel and leading them to many victories. He certainly had at least the fear of the nations, if not their obedience. He was the first to carry the scepter and the staff in the way that the prophecy speaks of. King David provided much abundance with regular building projects and relocating the capital of Israel to Jerusalem. David satisfies all of these prophecies. David was a great warrior, a supreme king, and he brought abundance to Israel. He did it all, and yet, and yet not even he receives the title of the Lion of Judah. Who then is worthy of being called the Lion of Judah? Let me read from Revelation 5, verses 1 through 6. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I turned and saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. And then verse nine, they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. 
Who is worthy of being called Lion of Judah? It is the Lamb of God who stands slain at the center of the throne, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is worthy of being called the Lion of Judah. Jesus is a great lion-like warrior. Susie just read from Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. Let me read it again. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has his name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It depicts Jesus riding in on his white horse, a sword from his mouth to rule and demand the obedience of the nations. He rules them with an iron scepter. He is a king of kings and a lord of lords. Revelation is constantly picking up imagery from Judah's blessing to describe Jesus. And it is a description of Jesus that we don't dwell on very often. Certainly Jesus is kind and servant-hearted and loving and sweet, but he is not and he never was harmless. C.S. Lewis did a great job of depicting this aspect of Christ in his classic children's series, The Chronicles of Narnia. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the protagonists are being hosted by a couple of talking beavers, and they have this exchange about Aslan, who is the Christ figure of the narrative. And Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. He's the king, I tell you. Jesus is not a tame lion. He's not safe, but he is good. And when all is said and done, his death toll will be far beyond what David could have hoped to achieve. Jesus is the supreme king who demands the obedience of the nations. Revelation 19 says so. He wears many crowns and has earned the title King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is why I chose the NIV translation for Judah's blessing. Because verse 10, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come. And the obedience of the nations shall be his. It's not that the tribute comes, but until he who the tribute belongs to comes. Jesus comes and fulfills this prophecy and the nations shall obey him. He takes for himself a people, like Revelation 5 says, from every nation, tribe and tongue, all kings, presidents, rulers, prime ministers, dictators, governors will bow down before King Jesus. And Jesus is a king that brings about abundant fruitfulness. In fact, this was his first sign in John 2 at the wedding in Cana. Abundance in Judah's blessing has to do with an overflow of wine. So much wine that the donkeys can eat the grapes and you could wash your clothes in it. 
Jesus performs a miracle in John 2 where he turns somewhere around 150 gallons of water into wine. More wine than anyone reasonably needs. And it is good wine, pure wine, the best wine. And in John 2, the disciples see this sign and because of it, they believe in him. Because they see him satisfying the prophecy of Judah. The language is picked up again in Revelation 19.15, where it says that Jesus treads on the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. And also in verse 13, where it says that Jesus' robe was dipped in blood, just like Judah's blessing says that his garment would be washed in the blood of grapes. Jesus is the king. He is the lion-like warrior. He is the preeminent king. He is the one who brings great abundance. He is the root of David. He is the lion of Judah. All must bow down to him. You'll notice when Jesus speaks in the Gospels that his voice carries an authority that you don't see elsewhere. When he calls his disciples in Mark, Mark records that they immediately drop what they're doing and follow him. He speaks with a voice that demands to be heard and obeyed. You see the same thing whenever he casts out demons. He just speaks and they must obey. Church, the same thing is true of us. When he speaks to us, we must hear his voice and obey. If we are to be his sheep, we must recognize his voice and follow it. Again, not perfectly, but reliably and increasingly. We do not have the option to merely consider his words. It's not an intellectual exercise whenever Jesus gives us a command. It's a call to obey. It's a call to revere for us who have irreverent hearts. And when we obey, when we hear the voice of our shepherd and follow him, we are given every spiritual gift in the heavenly places. This is the salvation that Jacob waits on. I wait on your salvation, O Lord. He waits on God's gracious plan to be good towards us. And in our day, we have, we have the benefit of seeing it. We have seen the Lion of Judah, the very image of the glory of God. So let us take hold of that and follow him. Jacob would envy us, but he has faith all the same. Let's look at the last section of Genesis 49, verses 28 through 33. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham brought, which Abraham bought with the field, with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that, it is, that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Jacob's final request to his sons before breathing his last is that he would be buried in the land of his people in Canaan, the promised land. This is a testament to Jacob's faith in the promises of God, because even though they are enjoying life in Goshen in the land of Egypt, Jacob knows that his sons are not home. This is not where their offspring will spend their days. They will spend their days. 
Their descendants will go back to Canaan and occupy the land promised to his father, Abraham, his, his father, Abraham. Jacob has faith in the promises of God. And then he breathed his last and was gathered to his people, which is a Hebrew idiom for going to the grave, perhaps indicating a reuniting with his fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Sheol. Jacob waits on the salvation of the Lord to come. He trusts that God will bring his people back, that from Judah's line will come a warrior king of abundance, and that he will deliver God's people from evil and death. The seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. Like Joseph's blessing has taught us, God is good and powerful. He can be trusted with his plan even when we do not understand it. Jacob trusts him without the benefit of having seen the Lion of Judah. How much more should we trust him? Now that we've seen the very image of his glory, brothers and sisters, in your illnesses, in your betrayals, in your defeat and in your despairs, trust the king. He is good and he is powerful. The nations obey him and he is going to bring great abundance. Trust him, for there is nowhere else to go. Let's pray. Father, King of kings, Lord of lords, praise your name for the authority you have established over us. Praise your name, for you are the great warrior. Praise your name, for you have brought abundance, and you will continue to bring abundance. May the nations praise you. May we praise you and obey you, Lord. Help us to. You are not only a powerful king, you are kind and patient, extending undeserved grace to us when we fail. Help and protect us, our beloved king. May we honor and glorify you with all the days of our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.